Hi, Journey. Good morning. My name is Brandon Edwards. I'm one of the pastors here. And this is our first week in our new series called Renew My Soul, which is on the Psalms. And we're going to learn more about how the heart works in this series as we prepare to celebrate this Easter. We're going to be in this series right up until Easter. And this week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 teaches us how to have a heart at peace in the midst of difficult and dangerous circumstances in life. So things that are hard happen to us. How do we have peace? Because that's what's promised in Psalm 91. Now, when I was in elementary school, I lived in Washington State at the time, and I lived on a hill. And none of my friends, or I had no friends my own age that lived on my block. No kids. No high school students, nothing. It was all older people. And so in order to hang out with friends, I had to get a ride. And I couldn't just ride my bike because it was a super dangerous road going down this really steep hill with tons of blind curves. And so the only, the only people I had to hang out with were people that were much older than, me, older than me. So I was six or seven years old. And the main couple that I hung out with were in their late 70s. So they were like my grandparents' age or older. And, you know, that's kind of unusual to just go over to somebody's house when you're a kid my age and just hang out with people your grandparents' age or older. And, and, but I thought it was cool. I, I thought it was great. I mean, uh, they would drink Ovaltine and watch Wheel of Fortune. And, uh, I mean, my granny was really funny. She would, she would eat ice cream for breakfast, cereal for dinner, and Totino's 35 cent pizzas for lunch. That was what she ate. And which for a kid, I was like, this is awesome. And so my neighbors who I hung out with, they were, they had these cool things that were like chocolate covered little ice cream balls called bonbons. They were ice cream bonbons. And maybe you've had those. Well, I loved those things. So I would just hang out at their house and I would eat those. And I was pretty much like, being old is awesome. And, uh, but one of the things I realized, I would hang out with them and we would talk, we would have Arnold Palmer's and we'd play with my dog or whatever. And they'd talk about gardening. But what, what we really, uh, what they really talked about was how worried they were about everything. I mean, they were worried about the government, you know, back then in the 80s. They, they were worried about what was going on financially. They were worried about their kids. They were worried about their grandkids. They were worried about me. They were definitely worried about themselves. And I remember going home thinking, man, they just worry all the time. Like, why do they worry? Like, how is that helping them? And as, then when I started having kids, and as I got older, I realized, wow, when I was a kid and my friends, when I was younger, we didn't worry. We had this assumption that bad things don't really happen to us. They may happen, but they don't happen to people I know. Or they may happen, but they don't happen to my family. And then, as you get older, you realize, oh, like bad things do happen to people I know. And bad things can happen to my friends. And bad things will happen to me. And there are things to worry about. You come to realize that we really do live Fragile lives. And this world is a dangerous place. Now we see that there are four really bad things that can happen in our lives. And we have no control. 
We can do everything we can to prevent them from happening, but they will still happen. And the first one is serious illness or injury can happen to us. How do we have peace when we could just get sick or get injured any time? Unless we live in a bubble, and even then, we can still trip and hurt ourselves inside the bubble. So what, what do we do? How do we have peace? The second one is bereavement. As we get older, we realize people die. People die around us. We can die. We can't avoid that. The third one is relational betrayal. People betraying you. People letting you down. That can just happen. And no amount of protection can, can stop that. And the third one is financial reversal. Those are the four big ones. And we cannot protect ourselves. And as I got older, I realized, oh, there are things to worry about. It's the reason why Shakespeare has this incredible quote. He says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Man, Shakespeare is good. So knowing all of this, the four big things that can happen to us, how do we have peace in our hearts? Well, Psalm 91 talks about that. So we're going to look at Psalm 91, and it's this promise from God. The, there's broken down into three parts in your notes page. The first part is the first four verses, and it's, it's the big promise, and it's really clear. Okay, the second part, this middle part, it goes into how this promise works, what it looks like, and you think, is this even real? How could this be true? I mean, uh, how do you even read this? You know, you start thinking, I, I, I don't understand, I, don't, and I may not understand this. And then the third part is the key to unlocking the rest of Psalm 91 so that we can understand the promise. Because a promise is a claim made by God. If we misunderstand a promise from God, two things can happen. One is we don't understand the real promise from God. God has a promise for us. And if we don't understand it, then we don't know what it is. What is this promise? The other thing that can happen is we misunderstand the promise. So we believe something else. There's some other promise that we think this is saying, but that's not true. That's not a true promise. And so the two things, and, and what happens if that's true is we feel, we'll eventually feel let down by God and we won't be able to have the peace and the rest that God promises in Psalm 91. So we're going to look at that promise. We're going to understand how that works. And then we're going to unlock that so we can enter into that peace. So let's look at Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4. It says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. So the first thing we see there is that God is a shelter with a shadow, which means shade. Shadow and shade are the same things. And you think, oh, that's nice. God is, he's kind of like a barn and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to have shade. Well, no, actually what it's saying there is in, in hot, arid climates, the shade is really important. It can be the difference between life and death. So God is saying, I'm going to protect you from death. He goes on to say that I'm a fortress 
and a refuge. And then he says this really cool metaphor that's really the best part, I think, of the whole thing, of all five of the metaphors in there. He says, I'm going to cover you with my feathers. You'll find refuge. And those five things together are just five examples of how God's going to protect us. That is the promise in the first four verses. It's this picture of a mother bird protecting her young. That's the image that we see. So this is the first example. I found this on the internet. And I don't, maybe I'm reading into that chicken, but he doesn't look too happy about how many kids he has. And then here's the next one. I thought, I called this bedhead. Baby bedhead. Uh, but you can see the feathers. Now, the next one is really cool. It's a swan. And the swan cygnets. I had to look at what are swan babies called? They're called cygnets. And you can see they're inside and protected by the swan's feathers. And then the next, this last one is also cool. It's a barn owl. And it's protecting its babies from the photographer right here. But you can just see how the barn owl would protect. It wants to protect from predators. And that's the image God's using. And what does it evoke? It says that I'm going to protect you from the rain. I'm going to protect you from the sun. I'm going to protect you from predators. God's saying, as I spread my wings over you. And that's this cool metaphor that conveys strength. The mother is stronger than the babies. We're the babies and God is the mother and is protecting us. The second one is it's conveying tenderness and love. God tenderly loves us, protects us like a mother protecting its babies. And now there's a third thing that that metaphor is saying, and I'm going to hold off until later, okay? But it's a powerful metaphor, and it's used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's uh, four places where it's in the Old Testament. In Ruth 2.12, it says, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then Psalm 36, 7, another psalm says, both high and low among men, rich and poor, great and small, those men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until disaster is past. And then Psalm 61, 4, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. So, these are cool examples, but the vast majority of examples in the Bible that, that describe God, the vast majority of metaphors are that God is the king, they're masculine, and that God is a father. And so scholars think that the reason we have these kind of meta metaphors, the reason why God uses these metaphors in the Bible is to teach us that God is, is also not a remote and distant father. This is a metaphor that tells us God is close and God is tender and loving and protects us also. It's sprinkled in there, but mostly there's, it's this masculine, strong metaphor that God's the king and God is the father. But what it's saying in those first four verses is that if you trust God, if you love him, if, then he's my God and, and he's saying... I will be your God and you will be my people. He's using covenant language in there. There's 43 places in the Bible where God uses that covenant phrase like he does in Psalm 91. He says, you will be my God. I will be your people. He's using that language in there. And, and the covenant is like a marriage. 
the, the best example of a covenant that we have today is a marriage. And so um, that's the kind of language God's using. It's, it's not just a promise. It's a commitment. And it's God's commitment to us, which he won't break. And so it's saying clearly over and over in Psalm, uh, the first four verses of Psalm 91, I promise I will be your refuge. I'm making a covenant with you to protect you. It's like, okay, great, I get it. I've got a covenant with God. He's going to protect me if I follow him, if I believe him. Awesome. How does that work? Well, that's the next section. So we're going to read Psalm 91, 5 through 13. And this is the part that's a little harder to understand. But here we go. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but you will but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Right there, you will not strike your foot. is like saying you're not gonna stub your toe. Not even going to stub your toe. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. So what he's saying there, you will not experience, if you trust in God, you won't experience pestilence. You're not going to experience plague or violence. You don't have to fear the arrow. No harm or disaster will follow you if you just trust in God. In fact, it's almost like this comedic example. You will not even strike your foot on a rock. You're not even going to stub your toe anymore. That's pretty good. So if God is protecting you, you're not even going to stub, stub your toe? Is that what it's saying? That's what, that's what it looks like it's saying. See, it's, it's, it's a little confusing. Is that really what Psalm 91 is saying? See, when we read that, we think, Okay, if I have faith in God, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to have a smooth sailing life. Nothing's going to go wrong if I have faith. And then, and then the opposite of that is, would also be true is that if something wrong is happening in my life, I must not have strong enough faith. I must not love God enough. And we, you hear that all around the church. I've heard that my whole life in the church. People think that. It just keeps popping up. They think, Oh, if you're faithful, you're going to have an easy life. And that doesn't mean, like, if you make good decisions, you are much more likely to have good things happen in your life. You make bad decisions, bad things are going to happen in life, for sure. But what this is, this is talking about a covenant promise, okay? And so we need to understand that promise. I was confronted with this in college. Um, I was in InterVarsity, and I love InterVarsity. But at the time, we had a leader who got cancer, and uh, he was a great leader. He was one of my favorite speakers, great man. Um, he still is. He's alive today. He, he fought the cancer. It was bad. He had to have surgery all over his body, removing the cancer. And, and he had to have tons of chemo. And he fought it. And, and it went into remission. Praise God. But I remember when he got cancer and he was going through all of that. I remember other leaders, and these weren't people my age in college. These were adults, people in their 40s and 50s. I remember multiple leaders saying they thought it was God's judgment on him. 
And I will tell you that I've been in the church for a long time, and I've been a leader now and a pastor for a long, a long time, uh, 20 years, and um, cancer can happen. It can happen to the old. It happens to the young. It does not discriminate. And, uh, but you see there's this interpretation of Psalm 91, like if you're faithful, you're not going to get cancer. And if he had been faithful, if he'd been a faithful leader, he wouldn't have gotten cancer. Because we desperately want that to be true. So scholars would tell you that there are three main reasons why you can't interpret and shouldn't interpret Psalm 91 that way. So the first one is we desperately want that to be true. We desperately want it to be true that if we're faithful, God is going to just save the day and all the time. We're not even going to stub our toe. I don't even need to wear shoes anymore. He can go shoeless. Jesus had sandals. That must be why. Because Psalm 91. And, and, and you realize that you desperately want it. And as soon as you realize that, you realize, I'm not being objective. And that's what scholars would tell you. Don't interpret it that way. The second one is because of Job. Old Testament, Okay. Job was a faithful man of God, and then everything that could possibly go wrong in his life happened to him. Family died, lost his business, lost his cattle, and then his friends, friends come up to him, and these are not the kind of friends you want to be or the kind of friends you want to have, but they come up to Job, and they basically say, Job, God promises, Psalm 91, if you trust him, nothing bad's going to happen to you. And bad things are happening to you, buddy, and it's your fault. That cancer is your fault, buddy. Those boils, you don't have big enough faith. And then, and these are bad friends, and, and then God comes. What, what happens? God comes back in a whirlwind at the end. And what does he say to Job's friends? He says, you have not spoken the truth about me. That's what God says about Job's friends. So the second reason why we don't want to interpret Psalm 91 that way is because God says it is not true. The third reason that we don't want to speak, uh, interpret Psalm 91 that way is because Satan wants us to interpret Psalm 91 that way. He wants us to read it that way, which is a pretty extreme thing to say Satan wants us to read it that way, but you'll see why. So, um, Shakespeare has this famous quote. It's that the devil can cite scripture for his own purpose. The devil can cite scripture for his own purpose. And that's true. He does it in the New Testament one time. There's one time where Jesus, where the devil quotes scripture to Jesus. And it's during Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And guess what he quotes? Anybody have a guess? Psalm 91. That's right. Psalm 91, verse 11. The devil quotes it in both, we see it in both Matthew 4, 6 and Luke 4, 10. He says, if you trust in God, you won't even stub your toe, Jesus. Good thing you're wearing sandals. What the Satan is saying is, I want you to interpret Psalm 91 this way. He's saying, if God lets you suffer, he's not good. If God lets you suffer, he's not true to his word. If he makes you suffer, that shows you can't trust him. See, Satan wants Jesus and he wants us to interpret Psalm 91 this way. He wants you to believe that if you trust God, 
Everything's going to go smooth. You can get some Birkenstocks. And if you don't, and, and if, you, and if things, bad things happen to you, it's God's fault. Or, and it's your fault. He really wants you to believe this. Which means there must be something incredible about the promise of God in Psalm 91. This is the one thing that Satan quotes and tries to mess Jesus up with. Because he knows if you interpret Psalm 91 that way, one, you're going to inevitably be disappointed in God and in life. Two, you're going to withdraw from God. You're not going to want to be in the shelter of his wings. And three, you're never going to get the powerful peace that God wants for you and God promises you in Psalm 91. And the fourth thing is you're going to be increasingly anxious and you'll become bitter. Now, how many of you know someone who as they got older, they became more bitter? I, I, I see as you get older, there's two ways you can go. You have more peace and love and joy and more bitterness. And that's what Satan wants. So there must be something incredible that God is promising in Psalm 91. But if that's, so Brandon, if that's not how we're supposed to read it, how are we supposed to read this? Okay, so the key to understanding Psalm 91 rightly, I'm going to describe with a story from the Bible and three other statements from the Bible, okay? So the first is the story of Joseph. Joseph is probably the best story, the best example of this. So Joseph, back in the Old Testament, He's the son of, of Jacob. Now, Jacob came from this messed up family history. He came from this dysfunctional family. And so what does he do? He favors Joseph above all his brothers. And what does that do? It makes Joseph into this arrogant, shallow, cruel brother. And you can see it in his dreams. And what happens to the brothers? Well, they're bitter and they're angry, and they're murderous, and they're capable of terrible things. So what do they do? What do these brothers do? They sell them into slavery, and they lie to their dad about it. And so Joseph gets sold into slavery, and he, and he goes to Potiphar's house, who's the master, and guess what? Good things start to happen to Joseph. It seems like things are getting better, and Joseph starts running his household, running Potiphar's household. And then what happens? Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and he gets thrown into jail. So just as Joseph thought, oh, God's blessing me. Oh, Potiphar's wife gets him thrown in jail, falsely accuses him. And, and then Joseph is in jail for so long. We don't even know how many years he's in jail, but it's years he's in jail and, and in prison. And what's happening during that time? Joseph is praying to God and hearing silence. He's hearing nothing from God during that time. But then what do we find out? We find out Joseph ends up working for the king. He ends up becoming the most powerful man in Egypt under the king, maybe even more powerful in some ways than the king. And God starts working in his life and turning all of that around so that Joseph is no longer this just miserable, isolated, arrogant person. He becomes a great man. God transforms Joseph. And then we also see through all of these hardships in Joseph's life, he transforms the brothers. The brothers become humble. And that's a lot of the, a lot of the time God uses hard things in our lives to humble us. But he also heals them psychologically. He heals the brothers psychologically. 
He humbles them. And then the third thing, which we would over, often overlook, is that Joseph lives and his family lives and everyone in Egypt lives because of everything Joseph went through, he's able to save Egypt from famine. So we find out that only through the suffering of Joseph is Joseph healed, his family healed, and all of Egypt, including Joseph and his family, are saved. And we begin to realize, wow, this suffering thing, it's more complex than I thought. It's not just about not stubbing my toe. I mean, I like Birkenstocks. But there's three biblical, so that's the story. And then there's three biblical statements that I'm just going to go through. One of them is, this is going to help us. Joseph, uh, in Genesis 50, let's see, 2050, no, 5020. <laughs> in Genesis 5020, Joseph says, you meant this for evil. He tells us to his brothers. You meant putting me in slavery was for evil. God meant it for good. And he saw that I, he, that everyone would be saved from it. And then we say something similar in Romans 8.28, a very similar thought. Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for God, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And every word in there matters. And we could do a whole sermon on that. But if I were going to summarize it for our purposes, is he's saying, all things aren't good. That murder-suicide that happened, that cancer that happened, that's not good. It's not saying that's good. He's saying all things, good and bad, God will work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to it. God will use all of those things. God can use those terrible things for the good of you and for the good of saving of humanity. So we see that from Romans. And then the third statement is in Luke 21. Jesus says to the disciples, and this isn't something we spend a lot of time usually in church looking at, but let's read this. You will be betrayed by parents. Jesus is talking to his disciples. You will be betrayed by parents, brothers, families, friends. Some of you will even be put to death. You'll be hated for all, by all for my name's sake. But not a hair, not a hair of your head Will be, but Jesus just said, some of you will be put to death. But he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. But in patience, patience means long-suffering. In patience, you will possess your souls. So Jesus is like, hey guys, I've got some uh, good news and bad news. You're going to be betrayed. Some of you are going to be put to death. You're going to be hated all for my name's sake. But wait. Not a hair of your head is going to be damaged. And the, the disciples are like, okay, what has Jesus been? I think he had a little too much wine. What are you saying, Jesus? And they don't understand it. And what's he talking about? It sounds a lot like you're not going to stub your toe. You're not going to stub your toe. You're not going to have a hair on your head, but you might be put to death. So what's he talking about? The key to that is in the word patient suffering. By being patient, you will possess your soul. But it still doesn't make sense. What is he saying? So, and here's the key. 
The whole idea behind Psalm 91, the whole idea behind that passage that Jesus just quoted, that I just quoted of Jesus, is the cross. So Psalm 91 is pointing to the gospel. The Psalm 91 is pointing to the cross. See, what Jesus and what the author of Psalm 91 is saying is that we all have refuges other than God. We, sh- we take shelter in things other than God. So what are things that we might love more than God? So when bad things happen in our lives, how do we feel? Is it taking us out? Do we have a meltdown? If you do, that might be a time where you find out what you actually love, what you actually are using for your refuge. What really is your refuge? When bad things happen, you're going to find out, and God's going to use that in your life. God uses hard things to happen, bad things to happen to find out what your real refuge is. Is it success? Is it accomplishment? Is it other people's ideas and thoughts of you, what they think of you? Those might be your refuge. And the only way I found in my life to find out if God is my refuge is if bad things happen. I find out real quick. Nope, what that person thinks of me, what that leader thinks of me, is my refuge. Wow, and that might have taken me out if I didn't figure that out. But what God says is if if you love me and I'm your refuge, you will possess your soul. Because those things, right now, he's saying, Brandon, he's saying to you, those things are your refuge and they possess your soul. They own you. Those things own you. And so when things go badly, you are going to have a meltdown. But if God becomes your refuge, you will possess your soul. It's an opportunity to find out and to have our souls be be in God. So, what God is saying here and what Jesus is saying there is that he's going to protect you. He's going to protect the real you, the you that's going to last for eternity. He's protecting you forever, the infinite you. That's the toe that you're not going to stub. That's the hair that's not going to be damaged. And then you become the kind of person whose heart is at peace in the midst of dangerous circumstances. So how does that work? How do we actually do that? And that's the key is in the last part of Psalm 91. So let's read that together. Psalm 91, 14 through 16. Because he loves me, says the Lord. And then this is unusual for the Psalms because God is going to start talking. So God says, I will rescue him because he loves me. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble I will deliver them and God and and honor him with long life, really long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And here's the key. It's similar to what we talked about earlier when Alex talked. God God says, I'm with you in trouble there. I will be with you in trouble. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought I wasn't going to have any trouble. And that's the key is right there in the psalm. God is saying, you will have trouble. 
and I will be with you in trouble. Because, and that makes sense when we have the rest of the Bible. When we see the rest of the Bible, we see Job has trouble. We see the disciples are going to have trouble. We realize God is saying that we are going to have trouble. But what God's saying in Psalm 91 is, I will be with you in trouble. And I will protect you. It's pointing forward to the gospel. You see, what's amazing about the gospel is that until God sent Jesus down to be with us, he was omnipotent. He, he still is, but he, he's omniscient, omnipresent. He's perfect. He's glorious. He's infinite. He's holy. He didn't have any trouble. But then he went and got some by coming down in the person of Jesus. When he was born in a manger, he came to be with us in our trouble. The invulnerable God became vulnerable. The all-powerful God becomes mortal. The unkillable God becomes killable so that he could go on the cross and die for us to pay for our sins. And no other religion in the world talks about that. There's no other religion that says the perfect God is going to become killable so that he can pay for our sins. And no other religion in the world says, I will be with you in that way. And we know because of that, that Jesus knows our pain, knows our struggle. He felt betrayal. He felt the hurt. He felt those four things that we talked about earlier. And so as Christians, it's really important. We have this amazing example that, that reinforces this in Psalm 91. So when trouble comes, we can take refuge in him because we know he's been with us. So that brings us back to the illustration with the mother bird. Okay, so the first two parts that the illustration with the mother bird talks about is it conveys protective strength. God's protecting us. The second one is tenderness and love. And the third one is what, what, what I just said, is substitutionary sacrifice. How does the mother bird protect us? The mother bird protects us from the sun by getting hot. The mother bird protects us from the rain by getting wet. And the mother bird protects us from predators, predators by getting eaten. See, Jesus calls himself the mother bird. He says in Luke 13, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to take you under my wings like a mother hen. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. And we see that Jesus, what's he talking about? What's, what, what's he protecting them from? He's, he's protecting them from judgment. God's talking, God, God's judgment is coming. Jesus longs to protect Jerusalem from judgment. It's, this example, it reminds me of this true story I heard back in the 90s, and I found it this week. So I'm going to read this to you. It's, it's short. 
A forest fire had been brought under control and the group of firefighters were working back through the devastation, making sure all the hotspots had been extinguished in this forest fire. And as they marched across the blackened landscape between the wisps of smoke still rising from the smoldering remains, a large lump on the trail caught the firefighter's eye. As he got closer, he noticed it was the charred remains of a large bird. And it had burned nearly halfway through, and which was weird since birds can so easily fly away from approaching flames, the firefighter wondered if it had been sick or injured. Arriving at the carcass, he decided to kick it off the trail with his boot. And as soon as he did, he was startled half to death by the flurry of activity at his feet because four little birds flailed in the dust and ash and then scurried away down the hillside. See, the bulk of the mother's body had covered them from the searing flames of the forest fire. Though the heat was enough to consume her, it allowed her babies to find safety underneath in the face of the rising flames. She'd stayed with her young, and her dead carcass and her fleeing chicks told the story. She had given the ultimate sacrifice for her young. So the fire had come, And she had protected them under her wings. And that's the example Jesus is talking about. That's the example he's referring to when he talks about Psalm, when when he talks about the shelter of my wings. He's pointing back to Psalm 91. Jesus says, I can shelter you from judgment. He said, see, Jesus saw people betraying him. He saw people denying him. Saw people forsaking him and mocking him. And what did he do? He went to the cross. And in the greatest act of love that the world's ever seen, he was burnt to a crisp. He went to the cross in order to take on God's wrath, God's perfect justice. And he saved us under the shadow of his wings. We were saved. He was killed. We were saved. And that's how you understand Psalm 91. You say, God will never let anything ultimately bad happen to me. You see, Jesus trusted him. He trusted him more than anyone else in the history of the world. Trusted him perfectly. But God allowed something very bad to happen to Jesus. Very bad. Death on the cross. But why? For our redemption and the redemption of the world. Our redemption, glory, joy, resurrection. And so when bad things happen to you, you have to say, Jesus, I see you suffering with me and with patience. And because you did that, I can trust you. I want to have you be my refuge. I'm going to be in the shelter of your wings. And if you do that, you will possess your soul. You can have peace in the heart in the midst of difficult circumstances. Right, right now we're going to set our things aside and pray. So you can set your things aside and bow your heads in prayer. If this is the first time that you have, you realize that you haven't made Jesus your refuge and that you want 
to make him your refuge, you want to make him Lord of your life, then I ask you to pray this prayer with me. And maybe you also want to pray this prayer in in silence to yourself because you realize you need to, you want to recommit your life. But let's pray this together. Jesus, thank you for loving me personally by becoming a person so that I could know you and have a real relationship with you. Thank you for breaking down all the barriers that keep me from knowing and experiencing you. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place to the penalty for my sin and my guilt and my shame. And I ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart and into my life and be my king and my savior and my refuge, my protector. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and giving me eternal life. I want to turn from my sin today and turn to you. Take control of my life and make me the kind of person you want me to be. And with every head bowed and eyes still closed, if this is your first time making that decision, we believe around here that it's really important to acknowledge that as a statement that that's true. And so if that was your first time with every eye closed and every head bowed. If that was your first time, go ahead and lift your head up and raise your hand and I'll acknowledge that today. You can do that now. If that was your first time, yep, I see you there. God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us so perfectly and that you are with us, that you protect us and are our refuge that you defeated death. And uh, we pray that you would lead us into your peace. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.